Well, this morning we are going to be in Daniel chapter 6. If you brought your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to Daniel 6. I know I have the verses on the overhead and it's easy to see, but it's also good to have your copy of God's Word with you to have it open. And it's good to hear pages turning. Now before I go there real fast, I wanted to just drop this one up there. There's Noreen right there in all her glory. Yeah, Nathan. Yes, sir. Congratulations. A gift of the Lord. All right, back to Daniel. Now, we're really um, so happy for you guys and the entire family just bringing another baby to the house. I can only imagine the, the excitement and the, the great jubilation that must be happening there in the Callison home. We'll continue to pray for you guys. If you need anything, let us know. So in Daniel chapter 6, I've titled this morning's message, Open Windows. But by way of introduction, I do want to take you back to chapter 5, verse 29. <clears throat> and if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, last week, you saw how God started orchestrating the climax of the fall of the Babylonian Empire and used Daniel to interpret the handwriting on the wall. And as such, Daniel was rewarded by King Belshazzar and given a place of authority. And we saw that in chapter 5, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck. He couldn't run, he couldn't hide. He probably was one of the few that had a large gold Mr. T starter chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this elevation of Daniel being the third ruler in the Babylonian kingdom, as I mentioned last week, would have been akin to having a wallet full of monopoly money and thinking you're rich. You may have the ability to buy plastic hotels and plastic houses, but if you were to ever take that Monopoly money down to the quick trip somewhere and try to cash it in for a Snicker bar, you'd find out really quickly that it was, had no value. It was valueless. However, however valueless or however meaningless this proclamation may have seemed to appear from the perspective of the Babylonian kingdom that was under siege and was soon to fall that very night, we know something about God that believers don't. And what we know about God that believers don't is that Romans 8, 28 is in the good book and that it's true and that it's God. This is something we know, right? This isn't something we're... It's not a debating issue. It's not something that we maybe are challenged with. No, we know something. We know that God causes all things, fall of a Babylonian kingdom, the grabbing Daniel out of seemingly obscurity, who was just out tending his, his tomato plants, and then all of a sudden was scurried in before the king. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we see this happening in the book of Daniel long before the apostle Paul wrote this to the Roman believers. 
And we need to understand that what's happening in Daniel 5, 29, the, the uh, golden ne- uh, chain around his neck and the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom was a part of God's good purposes in Daniel's life and for God's great glory in Daniel's life. In other words, circumstances that sometimes seem to be really complicated and seem to be without contextual understanding as we're living our lives, it might simply be because we're failing to understand that heaven has a perspective and that God is up to something good in and through those circumstances. And sometimes you just have to wait long enough for it to become evident. Again, we don't know how long Daniel was in obscurity. When Belshazzar had him brought in, he said, are are you this Daniel that I've heard about? Didn't even recognize him. God is up to something good, and we see this particularly here in the life of Daniel. I thought about a multitude of Old Testament characters that we could think about that maybe uh, image this, and I thought of Joseph. He sold into slavery by his brothers, purchased by Potiphar to be a slave, wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, then wrongly imprisoned because of the wrong accusation, in prison for an extended period of time, eventually Oh, given visions of dream by God. Who does that remind us of a little bit? Maybe Daniel. And then as such was elevated to second in command over in in all of Egypt, just second to Pharaoh. All as a result of God Almighty causing all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And how much energy and effort did Joseph um, exude in order to attain the position he obtained? None. He was living his life, just trying to be faithful and available to God, teachable. God orchestrated and caused all those things to work together for good in his life. So when you get to Genesis 50-20, we have the Genesis 50-20 principle that says, what you intended for evil against me, Joseph said, God intended for good. Same mirror image of Romans 8-28, Genesis 50-20. And we could mention others. Sometimes I think we, you know, perhaps think that it's only in the life of Job that these kind of circumstances tend to work this way. We could look at a multitude of biblical characters and we would see that God is up to something good. Even in great adversity, even during great persecution. God is up to something good. We need to learn to walk in life with this kind of understanding do we not church we tend to be debbie downers oftentimes when we are observing the circumstances that surround our lives we know something and thus we need to live in light of what we know and who we know is that is this god here and he's the one at work causing all things to work together for what good i tell you what let's let's all say this verse together you ready and we know amen and amen and might the spirit of god allow the truth of this passage of genesis 50:20 passage the recognition of what we see him doing in daniel's life and joseph's life in a myriad of in your life and come to believe that that this is true for us as well. 
God is up to something good all the time. So look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 with me, and let's keep that context in mind. And if you're a note taker, you can put down the word appointment. Appointment, verses 1 through 3. An appointment. Verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. So these 120 satraps were to, in essence, be like officials, assistants, kingdom protectors. And they would be spread out all over the old Babylonian kingdom for the purpose of ruling a newly conquered people, which was something that would be obviously needed. Then verse 2, and it says, And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one. You see how God used that one night and the handwriting on the wall and the elevation to the third, the gold chain. Hey, you with the gold necklace, you can, you, no, we, uh, we, we see you. Who are you? Well, uh, he's third in command. Daniel is one of these who gets chosen by the new administration to be one of these commissioners of whom Daniel was one. That these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So three commissioners, these would act as secretary of states or maybe like a vice regent or a a vice president in our concepts. And we see the reason for these commissioners. It says that these satraps would be accountable to them. So the 120 satraps that are spread out over the entire kingdom to be in charge of the kingdom, they were accountable to these three um, commissioners. And it says very specifically that was put in place this way That, the end of verse 2, that the king might not suffer loss. So we see that the king, this new administration, King Darius, is setting up a government with a very basic principle that's not only good for government, but it's also needed in everyday life, and that's the principle of accountability. So the satraps were to be accountable to the commissioners so that the king might not suffer loss. And I couldn't help, I was thinking of this, and I couldn't help but draw a connection of some sorts of this with relation to the body of Christ, and that we have a heavenly king, and he has sent us out as ambassadors, and there needs to be accountability in the process of living in the body of Christ so that our king doesn't suffer loss, and the very thing that our king is wanting us to do in his kingdom is to be making disciples of all the nations. So again, that's a, that's a, a loose, it's not directly impl- implicated within what is stated here in, in Daniel, but it's a principle that we see that's a principle being applied here with this new government in, in Daniel chapter 6, and it's a principle that we need to be living by as well. You see, it's one thing to be a Christian who's living just the Christian life, we just live Christianly. And if we were asked, we would say, yes, we're definitely one of those Christians. But perhaps it's another thing to be a Christian who is living in such a way as to purposefully be trying to make disciples of men and women. And perhaps there needs to be some accountability in that process. 
It's in Matthew 28. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We as the people of God, we as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be living in such a way that our king isn't suffering loss. Let's see, our adversary comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That sounds like loss. Part of the Great Commission is to teach people to observe the Word of God where there is life and joy where there's God. And Jesus says, look, in this great process, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So it's my desire, and I know it's the desire of the elders at this church, that, we're, that we seek corporately at Jinx Bible to build a genuine biblical community of accountability towards that one great end, and that of making disciples of all people. We have a commission that was given to us by our Lord the Lord Jesus himself. We read about him in John 1 this morning. He was the word from the beginning. He was with God. He was God. And that word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And he left us, his people, with one commission. And that's what we want to be about at Jinx Bible Church. We want to make disciples of men who will turn around and make disciples, who will turn around and make disciples, who will turn around and make disciples, men and women doing this, making disciples of people all the more because we know the day of Christ is drawing near. And we want to be found faithful. Amen? Standing in our culture like Daniel did his. And I think we're going to see that this was one of the reasons that Daniel was able to stand the way he did. Now look at verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned... To appoint him over the entire kingdom. This Aramaic word here for distinguish is a participle which indicates a continuation of action. Which all that lets us know is that Daniel was continually, actively distinguishing himself over the other commissioners and satraps. And how he did that... How he distinguished himself continually over the other commissioners must have been through hard work. There was an excellent spirit, it says, about Daniel as he conducted his business and his life. And the king noticed this about Daniel. And as the text says at the very end there, he planned, the king planned to appoint Daniel over the entire kingdom. Kind of like a Pharaoh saw in a Joseph. Put this guy in charge of the entire kingdom. You answer to no one but me. We see Darius seeking to do the exact same thing for another child of God. Because these, ch these children of God are hard workers. They're not lazy. They work hard and they distinguish themselves in whatever context they have found themselves in. Now, let me remind us all here again that Daniel's what? He's probably 85 plus years of age at this time. I mean, allow that to sink in. An 85 plus year old man is distinguishing himself against the other two commissioners, so much so that the king was planning to put him in charge over the entire kingdom. 
it would seem to me that Daniel's not sliding home during his golden years. He hasn't retired, so to speak. He hasn't retired from life. We see Daniel still that very faithful, available, and teachable uh, man of God that we talked about last week. He's spiritually fat, regardless of his age, working harder than the rest to distinguish himself as being God's man so that God would look good there in this new administration with the Medes and the Persians, as he did with the Babylonians as well. Now, by way of a little application for us as God's people today, we have, it, we have a, a challenging work ahead of us just to get over some concepts, just to get over some mental concepts of the American way, the American dream, the American way of life, of working hard in order to ret- retire at the ripe young age of 65 and then spend the rest of your days and your money on indulging yourself or your grandkids or traveling the world and making fulfilling your bucket list and all these kinds of things. Or perhaps for some of us, just, just to sit around on the porch and do absolutely nothing. As American Christians, we've got to overcome some, some thinking if we're even going to try to emulate the kind of hard-working, God, God-fearing men that we see and women that we see in the Word of God. And one of the unique things, whenever you read through the entirety of Scripture, you never see this idea of retirement. God has a plan for your life, and now it's very specifically laid out for us, as we read in Matthew 28. God has a commission for you. And listen, if Daniel at the age of 85 plus is working so hard that he's distinguishing himself amongst the other commissioners there in the Medo-Persian Empire that the king wanted to make him in charge of the entire kingdom, how much should we all be laboring, senior saints in particular, because I'm kind of, we're dealing with Daniel as a senior saint here, Must we be thinking, God, how do you want to use my life to fulfill a great commission? Where where are my Timothys that I'm pouring into? For the older women, the Titus 2 women, where are the Marthas that I can be pouring into and teaching them how to? Retirement? It's just not something that we see at all. It's, it's an American concept and it comes from great wealth. And great wealth oftentimes brings a sense of great ease. God has not called us to great ease. He has called us to the fulfillment of a great commission. Amen? Let it be so. Now, if I just stepped on some toes... I will say what I always say is that I only have a size 12 foot and it's not even off the stage. If you felt anything, that would be the Spirit of God. If there's room for application, let it stick. And remember, your occupation doesn't define you as a person. An occupation doesn't define you as a person. It simply provides for you and your family. It puts a roof over the head, and it puts food on the table. What should define you as a person is your relationship that you have with God through Jesus Christ. There's the defining mark of a man or a woman. It's how they are known in relationship to their God. Occupation, Paul's a tent maker. How many people went around saying, oh yeah, I love 
Paul the tent maker. Paul's the tent maker. We, we never refer to Paul as really the tent maker. We know that he made tents to, make, to provide for himself, but he wasn't known as the, we don't think of him or talk about him as the tent maker. He's the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one untimely, who was one untimely shown to, and, and God used him to do amazing things. I remember meeting a man up in Pittsburgh. It was the first time this ever happened to me, and, and actually it's one of the only times, perhaps the only time that has happened to me. Um, his name was, um, what was his name? Scott, uh, Sean Kiefer, K-E-F-F-E-R. Scott, Scott Keffer. <laughs> it's coming, there it is. I'm seeing my, and I met Scott, and I'd only been there a little bit of time, and I, you know, you know what you always do. You say, hey, what, my name's Ben Averett. Uh, what's your name? What do you do? The old what do you do question, right? What do you do? And um, so he shook my hand and he said, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and I make disciples of men. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I was, in, I was wrongly anticipating an occupation speech. What do you do? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ who, makes a, who make disciples of men. And I said, man, that's one of the, the coolest things I've ever heard when asking that question in defining yourself. Man, you did that right. I want to do that. And I said, so, so now tell me, what do you do for tent making? And then he went on to explain to me what he did for a living and how he put bread on the table. Let's be like that, amen? Let's identify ourselves rightly. Let's think of ourselves rightly in, in accordance with the word of God. And let's be about the things that God has called us to be about. I thought of a few people that um, I know of in life who've done this very well. Just by way of example, have you ever heard of Ray and Ann Ortland? Perhaps Ray Ortland was John pa uh, Piper's pastor. John Piper at one point had a pastor. Piper and pastor kind of rhyme. Um, and then upon uh, retiring from pastoral ministry, Ray Ortland, uh, who has a son, by the way, who's also in ministry, but Ray and his wife Ann, they began a ministry to pastors and to their wives. And they did that well deep into their 80s. And they had retreats and they brought in wearied pastors and wives because they remembered what it was like in the pastorate and how lonely it can be and how challenging it can be. And they created a ministry. And for the next 40, 35 years of their life, they brought in pastors and wives and they loved on them. They encouraged them through the word of God. And that was a ministry to them until they got to where their health could not do that any longer into their 80s. And then eventually they both died. Mel and Patty Summerall. Mel Summerall started Denton Bible Church, the church that I attended while in Denton, Texas, and while in college there. Mel pastored that church until his protege, Tommy Nelson, took over as pastor while Tommy was in his early 40s. And so Mel and Patty started looking, well, what are we going to do now? And Mel uh, struck out, and he started the uh, missions ministry at Denton Bible Church. And for the next 35 years, Mel and Patty Summerall traveled the world starting training centers for pastors and pastors' wives. Patty has since passed. Mel is in his 90s. And while in his 90s, Mel has still made trips overseas to train national pastors the Word of God. Howard and Jean Hendricks poured into seminary students, both singles and husbands and wives, well into their mid-80s until health matters prevented them from doing so. I was privileged to be in the last class of Dr. John Walvert at Dallas Seminary. And you know that at the age of 92, when he passed away, he was in the process of writing a book in order <clears throat> to continue to be a, a blessing to the body of Christ and for the glory of God. Ethel Root. 
Remember Ethel Root? Ethel Root was sending my wife emails of encouragement for years. Ethel Root was, a, a, was an, uh, an older woman that my wife Lisa knew when she was living in Pennsylvania. Ethel Root became homebound in, in a wheelchair. Well, what can you do if you become so incapacitated that you can't even get out of a wheelchair? Ethel Root, in her wheelchair and with her computer, sent emails to people all over the world encouraging them in, in their walk in Christ and letting them know that she was praying for them. And my wife got those emails up until her death into her mid to late 80s. People who distinguish themselves as being children of God well into the latter years of life cultivated a mindset that kingdom building for Christ was life. Let's do the same. Verse 4, put down the word accusation. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation. You see how, <clears throat> you see how um, I really stretched for my outline? I said, put down the word accusation. You're going to see this all through my outline for you this morning. I'm just grabbing words right out of the text. Trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. <clears throat> and no negligence or corruption was found, was to be found. <clears throat> the Bible says that the satraps and the other two commissioners searched long and hard to find something with which to accuse Daniel in regard to government affairs, to his work. Yet no negligence or corruption was found in, in Daniel. And this tells us something about Daniel and about his work ethic. <clears throat> and we've already made mention that he was outworking the rest. And so while they were trying to find a loophole <clears throat> in which to trip Daniel up, they were unable to find any, anything. Now, you may remember from last week when we went back into Jeremiah 29, we saw here that this was what God had told the Judean exiles to be doing while they were in exile, that they needed to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you have welfare. And Daniel is doing the exact same thing now that he's in the Medo-Persian Empire that he had been doing for the past 70 years while in Babylon, praying to Yahweh on behalf of the city in which he lived for its success and its welfare. For in its welfare, he knew he would have welfare because he believed in God. Life or death, welfare. Which we see in verse 4 seems to have included in Daniel this idea of having a strong work ethic, that not just praying for the welfare of the city, but working hard as well for the welfare of the city. It seems that this in, implied for Daniel clearly a strong work ethic. 
And as Daniel's haters were looking really closely for some ground to trip him up on for accusation, no such negligence was to be found. And such should be the work ethic of all of God's children. Now, can you imagine if someone searched your life perhaps as closely as they were searching Daniel's life, looking for a ground of accusation with regard to his work, that they might find something on him. Listen, uh, we need to be those that if our lives were searched and fine-tooth combed as was Daniel's, that we could be found with nothing by way of accusation on us either. Amen? A strong work ethic is part of being a child of God. Because who do we work for ultimately? We're not working for man, but for God. Because we belong to Him. Always. And since they could find no ground of accusation against Daniel, either morally or ethically in relationship to his job, the plot now changes and they start to try to find something with regard to his God. We see this in verse 5. It says, Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now think about this. These these new satraps and commissioners, we don't know who they are. We know that they're somehow connected with the Medo-Persian Empire that just overthrew the Babylonian Empire. But these men learned something about Daniel's commitment to Yahweh really fast, it seems. They quickly learned that Daniel's relationship with his God was the fundamental guiding principle of his life. They seemed to clearly have an understanding that if Daniel was forced to choose loyalty between Persia or Yahweh, that Daniel would go with Yahweh, his God, all the way to death. Somehow they've quickly learned about this. Somehow, imagine. I mean, just somehow. They perhaps have discovered this so quickly about Daniel and, and thus his reputation. You know, and I was thinking about this in relationship to a more modern concept of this that we're per perhaps all familiar with I don't know how many of you have ever seen I'm going to bet all of you at some point have seen that movie Chariots of Fire perhaps if not it's one that you would need to see and uh, it's about a man named Eric Little who was a, a follower of Christ who loved the Lord and he was an Olympic sprinter and he was really fast and he said God made me fast and he said and when I run I feel his what? His pleasure. I heard about five different answers. I feel his pleasure. When I run for God, I feel his pleasure. Oh, I love that. Man, when we're doing what we do for God, are we feeling his pleasure? Knowing that we are doing what he has called us to do and made us to do. Hmm, that's, that is so good. Well, in this movie, there's a very poignant moment where Eric Little's loyalty to God and his love of country clash. There's a scene where the European heads of state are trying to talk Little into running his Olympic meet, as was scheduled, which was on a Sunday morning. And Eric Little had already informed them that he was going to be unable to run on Sunday morning. And in this scene, these, all these heads of state are trying to talk Little out of that decision. And they were trying to leverage loyalty and love of country first. 
If, you're, if you love your country and you're loyal to your country, Eric, you would do this. It's a very intense scene in this movie. And Eric is said to have said it like this, quote, God knows I love my country. But to run on Sunday would be to dishonor him. I won't run on Sunday. And if you think about it, what do we know Eric Little for today? We know him exactly for this. And I can't help but think that had he run on Sunday, we would nearly even mention the name Eric Little at all. He would just been another Olympic runner who won a gold medal perhaps. And we've already forgotten all the other ones who've won gold medals. We would have forgotten about Eric just the same. He stood on a principle that he believed in, in relationship to his God. Loved his country, but it wasn't country, God, family. For Eric, it was God first. And when he got put in that tension, Eric went with God. And we still talk about Eric today for this very thing. And wouldn't you know it, here we are still talking about Daniel down to this very day. And that God used Daniel to write his story and he canonized it into the scriptures so that all of God's people for all of time in history would be talking about Daniel. And then we have these little slogans that say something like, you know, dare to be a Daniel, right? I mean, in our culture for a long time, there was all these, you know, I want to be like Mike. Remember all those commercials? The great Michael Jordan. Listen, I'd rather be like a Daniel than Mike any day of the week. I'd rather be like an Eric Little any day of the week. When it's all said and done, we want to be known as God's kids. Your legacy left on this planet isn't, let me tell you, if, if it's about something that's made of gold or silver or bronze, a statue of some sort, it will be long forgotten about in a short 25 to 50 years. You be a man or a woman for God, your family and the, the impact be like a ripple. It can just ripple down through your family from generation to generation to generation. The greatest inheritance and probably the only inheritance I'm going to have to give my kids is a bucket full of digital sermons. And I just go read this. This is what your dad did. This is what he invested his life in. I don't have a lot of lands or houses or boats or cars or anything to give you. But I gave you all my love, and I left you with a legacy of that your daddy stood on the word of God for his entire life. And I believe that's going to be sufficient. Amen. Daniel was God above everything, death before dishonor. What will our reputation be with amongst outsiders as was his? And we also know that Daniel's reputation of being a follower of Yahweh was public. Knowledge. It's one thing to have faith in God and to say this is a very precious matter to me. It's a matter close to the heart as it is. But one of the things we see from the word of God, it's never intended to be a private matter of the heart. It's never intended to be something that we just keep to ourselves. You kind of heard of like, you know, the, the, the closet Christian, right? No. Daniel's relational moxie with Yahweh was a public commodity. Notice this as we keep moving. Look at verse 6. 
and 7. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement. Oh, by the way, if you're putting down another word, it's the word agreement. <laughs> I told you I'd keep it simple. So from verse 6 through 9, just put down the word agreement. If you're taking notes, this is how I did it. Kind of keeps me a flow going. These commissioners and satraps came, came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. Verse 7, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together. That's a lie. Daniel wasn't in that consultation. And the king should establish a statute and, and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, that's all, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, this statue, by the way, was obviously to prove one's loyalty to the king, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of this injunction, was to show loyalty to the king. The very thing these men are not being. <laughs> They're not being loyal to the king. They're lying to the king for selfish purposes in order to entrap Daniel and to have him eaten alive in the lion's den. Now, on the surface of things, on the level of human appearances to everyone looking on it would appear that these commissioners the two and the satraps were truly loyal to the king without question but as the reader of the story we're able to clearly discern the deceptive nature of what's going on here at that heart level that not everything at the heart level is the same thing as the eye level the eye test and as the reader, as we reflect on this story, I, it seems to me that God would want us to pick up on that as well. He would want us to make recognition of this distinction between true loyalty to a king and false loyalty to a king. And that he obviously, the, the one with the all-seeing eye who knows all things, the beginning from the end of all things, he knows the difference between that and where we individually are at with that in our own hearts today so as we are here this morning we know that we are either perhaps more like satraps and commissioners and their loyalty to the king or we're perhaps more like daniel with regard to loyalty to both the king and to his god we know the level of loyalty that we ex exhibit whether it's to family members a husband to a wife a wife to a husband us in our relationship with christ to our employer whoever it may be we need to be people of integrity, as was Daniel, and as these people were not. And so as we're reading through historical narrative, as we are here in God's Word, one of the things that we want to make recognition of is not just the simple uh, recognition that, oh, yes, I see this, this, this disloyalty in the text to the king, and oh, bad for them, and good for Daniel. No, we need to be making uh, an application by means of the implication that we're seeing within the text that, that God would want the same from us and called, as he called from Daniel, he would want to see that kind of heart within us as well. Now, you've got to remember, why in the first place were these Judean uh, captives in captivity? Remember, God grew weary of their lip service loyalty as these commissioners and satraps had to their king. God grew weary of that lip service loyalty for their hearts were far from him. If you remember, and we're going to see there when we get there in, in chapter 9, they forsook 70, uh, for, for 70 years, they forsook the seventh year Sabbath 
day of rest for the land. That's a total of 490 years that they were giving lip service to God and his word and what he was calling them to do. And as such, God put them in Babylonian captivity for the exact number of years that they violated the seventh year Sabbath for the land rest. We'll get to that more on that later. I'm going to flesh that out way more when we get to chapter 9. God's not interested in lip service. Just the saying of the thing, but not the doing of the thing. God really wants the doing of the thing, which is the harder thing to begin with. He wants all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Now let's keep moving. Verse 8 and 9. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which obviously we've seen, we see here, and we've seen also in other historical texts that this was a law of the Medes and Persians when an injunction or document was signed. There was no changing of that, as, as it says here at the end of verse 8, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. So the king was fooled. He was used by those who were, in, they were intended, we saw in verse 2, verse 1 and 2, they were intended to prevent harm from the king, but instead they're here bringing deception to the king for their own selfish purposes. But now in verse 10, we're going to discover that that thing, we're going to discover that thing that made Daniel, especially Daniel. And so if it's our desire here this morning to become more of a man or a woman likened unto the character that Daniel's demonstrating, we need to pay close attention to this right here and put down the word authority. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entrusted his house. Now in his, excuse me, not entrusted, he entered I just tripped myself up with my own reading. I'm like, that's not right. I'm staring right at the word entered, and I said entrusted. Has anybody else ever done that? Thank you. I'm not alone. Oh, except for David. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Now, I want to make three observations from Daniel from verse 10, all of which we as God's children, I believe, need to be three out of three on. You ready? Number one, Daniel's faith, though very precious to him, was not private, as I already made mention of. Notice what the text says here. It says that the windows were opened, the name of my title of the sermon, toward Jerusalem. Open windows. Opened windows which means that those who sought to entrap Daniel to get rid of Daniel knew that if they would get the king to sign this injunction they had a way to do this why because they knew this was true about Daniel why because Daniel's windows were open he was not a closet Zionist he was not a closet Yahweh worshiper if you will he wasn't a closet Christian I'll put that in a parentheses loosely there his windows were still open even after he knew the document had been signed and knowing what the consequences would be windows were still open Daniel's heart understood the fear of the Lord greater than the fear of man 
which enabled, obviously, the fear of the Lord enabled him to overcome the fear of man. I think that most of us would rightly have a fear of man if we knew that an injunction had been signed, that if we continued to pray to any God other than, than the king, that we were going to be thrown into a, a, a lion's den. I think most of us probably would have had a fear of that, not so much Daniel. His fear of God was a controlling influence in his life, come what may, life or death. And so how do we most effectively let our light shine before men? How do we most effectively keep our windows open before men in such a way that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? How can we most effectively keep those windows open in our lives so that people can see in and they can see who we truly are as God's people? So this, are your windows open, obviously is metaphorically speaking, but the, the, the idea for us is, are we openly living in our faith of Jesus Christ for others, whether they're passerbyers or just onlookers, peering through the windows at a distance maybe? But are we living in such a way that we would be known by people, intimately known to us or passerbyers, that we belong to Jesus Christ? Is our heart truly His? Are we demonstrating a glad submission to his word? And I'm not saying perfectionism. When we make mistakes, what do we do? We simply repent and get back to living by faith. That's what we do. And in repentance, that's good fruit. And it's a good testimony to people that, okay, even though they're not living as perfect little boys and girls, they recognize when they sin, there's a need for repentance. That's what we do. God has put people in your life do they know truly that you belong to him in an intimate way? Daniel did. Number two, Daniel was disciplined. One of my favorite New Testament passages, 1 Timothy 4, 7, says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Daniel was disciplined. You need to be disciplined. For the purpose of making God look good of having a testimony, of letting your light shine before men, of having open windows. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Prayer was not just simply a part of Daniel's life. It was his life. He did this, it says, three times a day, as was his custom. What's something that most of us do three times a day, as is our custom? Eat. Daniel understood that Spiritual nourishment was his eating. And as such, Daniel prayed three times a day. In the same way, no physical nourishment, little strength, no spiritual nourishment, no spiritual strength. Daniel had spiritual strength. How did Daniel have spiritual strength? He was a man of prayer. I'm not saying to you today, hey, you need to go and pray three times a day. But I would say, if, if you can, it's, not gonna, it's not, surely not going to hurt you. And, you know, and then we, we oftentimes throughout the New Testament injunction which says well we're to pray at all times without ceasing that's true let's do, let's do that too <laughs> let's just when you're driving and you feel road rage coming on lord jesus i need your help right now jesus take the wheel i'm letting go you know whatever it takes but pray without ceasing at all times if you need to do it three times a day, just pray be men and women of prayer and you'll have spiritual strength it's, it's, it's not amazing. It's, the, the correlation is 100%. People I talk to in counseling, oftentimes the two most obvious questions I ask is, what's your quiet time look like? Don't have it. What's your prayer time look like? Don't have it. And thus, here we sit. 
no spiritual strength, no spiritual nourishment, no spiritual strength. The adversary has killed, still stolen, and is destroying, just like he came to do. We need spiritual strength. You want to be like, like a Daniel, dare to be like Daniel? Pray. It's that simple. Number three, Daniel rested in God's sovereignty. He had an attitude of acceptance. Notice what the text says right here. It says uh, he prayed three times a day. And notice right here, praying and what? Giving thanks. Okay, so Daniel, it's, Daniel knew. Daniel knew that the document was signed. And as such, Daniel went ahead into his house, kept his windows open, went ahead and prayed in disregard to said injunction. And while he's praying, notice what is he doing? He's giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Daniel's not sweating the details. Daniel's not sweating the, oh, well, the Persian Empire, they may kill me. These Persians, they may be the ones that take. I survived the Babylonian kingdom, and maybe it's going to be. No, Daniel's not sweating the details. Which reminds me also of another New Testament passage that would be good for us to, to wrap our, our, our minds around so that we could perhaps live with a similar peacefulness with regard to such knowledge. We perhaps know some things that aren't real pleasing in the world in which we live and there's going to be some documents signed at some point where there's going to be a, a peace agreement between an antichrist and the nation of Israel and um, there's going to be the need, they're going to be saying at some point you're going to need to take the mark of the beast. And, and are we going to still have windows open and praying? What, what are we going to do? And when you think about this, how easily would it have been for Daniel to just avoid all this? I mean, all he had to do was go into his house and close the drapes. That's all he had to do. Or he could have taken the approach that sometimes I hear Christians talk about today. I'm just not going to pray for 30 days. Either way, it wouldn't have mattered. Either way, don't pray for the 30 days, close your drapes. Daniel could have resolved this so easily. So clearly, we see that Daniel's public faith and him being recognized as, as a man of God and walking with God included, included in Daniel's mind the imminent threat of loss of life, or he would have sought an easier way out. And there were easy ways out for him. He chose not to take them. And I think it's because he wasn't anxious. Way before the apostle Paul wrote this one too to the Philippian church. Daniel's not anxious. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. He was a man of prayer and supplication. Another word for similar kind of prayer. Making a request known to God. With thanksgiving. What was Daniel doing? Giving thanks before his God with difficult circumstances, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. And sometimes we sit around and, we, when, and we, we pontificate over our comprehension of how difficult this is and how horrible this is and how wrong this is and this just shouldn't be this way and I just don't understand why God would let this happen and on and on we go forever ad nauseum. There is a peace of God that will surpass that when you learn to have thanksgiving before your God and when you start making this your habit as you've been doing previously it gets easier and easier and easier to do and oh God's peace will guard your heart and your mind in the very person with whom you most closely identify in 
your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't this good? This is so good. We need to be three of three, as was Daniel. Faithful. His faith, though not precious to him, was, was not private. We need to not be closet Christians. Daniel was disciplined. We need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And we've got to rest in God's sovereignty. God's got this. God's got this. Last verse. Notice verse 11 this morning. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Just like they knew they were going to do. And it's these men of verse 11 at the two commissioners, the satraps, the, that governing body there within the Mede and the Chaldean administration conspiring against Daniel before the king and under him thrown into the lion's den where he would be obviously eaten alive. They knew that they would find Daniel doing the very thing that they found him doing. This lets us know that they really knew a lot more about Daniel than perhaps the text even lets on. They knew that Daniel was in love with his God. Come what may. And it seems to me that what they found Daniel doing there with the windows open is he was just living by faith, trusting in God, trusting in God with his life. He was trusting in God with his, his uh, you know, this new gold necklace that he perhaps was still wearing, I don't know, his earthly possessions, his goods. He was trusting God with his life and his pleasures were in God. Daniel was found living by faith. He wasn't going to stop praying for 30 days. He wasn't going to shut his drapes. Daniel was just going to be a man of God. And so I'm submitting to us this morning that we need to be found doing the same. Come what may, we haven't been thrust into, into any difficult circumstances quite like this just yet. We have some difficult circumstances and it seems that they're just on the horizon. I made mention about a month ago of a law that was signed in Canada that forbid the uh, conversion therapy of the LGBTQ and that if anybody even were to in, uh, make the impression to, to the, that community that they could be converted and that that's not the way God would have them live, you could suffer up to five years of imprisonment for said attempts. And now what do we see happening just four weeks later in Canada? I'm just telling you, be paying attention what's going on around you but do we need to fear who who holds our future God does God's got this so let's be found like Daniel praying three times a day Lord how would you use me perhaps before they take me away as they did Joseph and put him in the in the dungeon now I've got to do everything I can to prevent that you have no idea he may want you in a dungeon because you don't know the good that he's up to and how he wants to use your life. We don't know. Do, do we know? We don't know. So let's just stay spiritually fat, faithful, available, teachable. Whenever God puts us in a circumstance we didn't even know that it was coming, in that moment, let's stay faithful, available to God, teachable, open windows, an open life. We live for the Lord. He's our hope and our glory, our joy. In Him, we can be anxious for nothing. In Him, we have our peace. Now, everything I'm saying is the easy to say, it's the hard to do. But is it possible? Yes, it is. Because we have God, the Holy Spirit, abiding in us, making that possible. Amen? We're going to pick up in Daniel, verse 12, next week. It gets really good. Come back. Let's pray.